Well, hey, everybody. Uh, if you're watching with us right now, I want to encourage you to open your Bible to the book of Acts. Uh, we're in chapter 9. We're going to be reading in verse 10. As you're opening your Bible to that or opening your device to that right now, I want to explain a couple of things before we get started today. Um, first, I just want to give you a reminder of the heart behind this series that we're in right now. Um, we've called this series When the World Turned Upside Down, and what we're doing is highlighting or looking at the group of people who are responsible for a very specific moment that exists in human history, when, when culture was literally being undone by the gospel. Uh, I just want you to imagine with me that there was a community of faith or a fellowship of people who were so deeply committed to one another, they were so deeply committed to the principles of the gospel, that as they lived that out, it formed incredibly different ways of thinking in every category of life. Uh, the, the value systems of culture, the politics of their day, everything about their lives shifted because because of their commitment to each other. And so there was this refreshing, life-giving thing that was taking place, and it begins to sweep ac across the land. Now, uh, as, you, as you read the book of Acts and, and you see this taking place, you also realize there's turmoil. You realize that things are being stirred and people's lives are being uh, turned upside down themselves. And there are people who are now no longer bond by, bound by the cultural idolatries. There's now people who have implications that are different because of the way they're living. They're, they're not being controlled by the power structures or by the people that had money. And so because of this, some people were experiencing freedom, but other people were experiencing turmoil. Things were being undone. The world is being turned upside down and it is breathing new life into society. Now, um, from my vantage point, looking out at the world today, looking at where we are right now, we need to learn a thing or two from these people. That's why we're in this series. I mean, I think a lot of us, we've had sort of a nagging feeling for a while. We've had this like sense that, that something's been wrong, but, but, but we've just been too busy. Like we've been too busy spending our money and, and, and shining our cars and, and, and filling our houses with furniture. We've been too busy just working and living to, to really pay attention to this. But now, now we're having to face this. This nagging thing is now on the front doorstep of all of our homes. This, this months-old global pandemic, uh, a, a culture that's divided in racial tension, arguments in politics, uh, economic realities that are now beginning to set in, all of these things that's being forced to physical distance, you name whatever the tension is, all of these things have created a moment in time in which we are now looking and realizing we need a fresh wind. We need something different. We need to address the broken things that are in our world. There's no better time for us to be looking at this group of people and seeing what happens when, when they take the gospel seriously and choose to live according to it. That's why we're looking at this. So I want to explain that. Now I want to explain something else to you. This has to do with the text we're getting into today. There are times when we approach a narrative in the Bible, a text in the Bible, and the application for us is so clear. Like the demonstration of what's taking place is so specific. The events are so prescriptive that they really don't need much explanation. Um, today's text is one of those texts. In fact, um, you barely need me today. <laughs> uh, when you hear this and you read this, there's a bunch of you that are going to go, yeah, I don't need an explanation. I see what's happening. It's really clear to me. With one exception, there are times when no matter how clear the Bible is being, no matter how simple it is, no matter how specific it is, there are things that are presented to us that are so challenging. They might be clear, but they're so challenging and so counterintuitive that we will choose to ignore these things. We'll skip it. We'll explain it away. We'll make some sort of excuse for it. We know it's there in front of us. It's simple and clear, but we will choose to disregard it. And yet somehow when you and I choose to disregard these things, 
these painstakingly clear points of application. And when we do that, we are not only choosing to ignore those, but we're ignoring the, the way of Jesus. We're choosing to step off the pathway that Jesus has set for us. It's that simple. So let me just say it this way. Let me give you something to hold on to for a few minutes. In order for you to discover the joy and the life and the meaning that is found in the person of Jesus, you must allow him to address the incongruencies between his way and our way. We have to allow him to do that. And, and there are basic bottom line behaviors that Jesus presents to us that are so fundamentally opposed to how humans operate in the natural that no matter how clear they come across, we will choose to ignore them and consequently drift away from Jesus, ignore him, unless our hearts are touched by the Spirit of God. So today, we're about to see one more way that the world is turned upside down by this powerful community of people. But in order for us to receive this, to truly receive this, we need a touch from the Spirit. We need to move beyond the natural. I've even been praying as I've been preparing this and as you watch this, praying that God will move and touch your heart as you listen to these very clear, very specific things. So with that, we're going to dive into the text. And I want to catch you up before we begin reading, but I just want to give you some background. If you weren't with us last week, last week we witnessed the confrontation between Jesus and a man named Saul. Saul was filled with animosity toward the Christian church. Saul was uh, filled with animosity toward Christians in general. He presided over the, the stoning of a man named Stephen. He was there when they murdered him. And now, as we pick up the story, he has received orders of extradition to go to another city, a city called Damascus, and he's bringing back people to, to beat them, to try them, potentially kill them for following the way of Jesus. Um, he, he has this encounter with Jesus along the way. He's confronted, and then he's left to contemplate what Jesus is doing in his life, what he's experienced. In blindness, he sits in a random house in a city called Damascus. And now we read this, verse 10. It says, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. I'm just going to pause here for just a moment. I want you to notice the difference between Ananias' experience and Saul's experience. Um, when, when Jesus approached Saul on the road to Damascus, when he was there with him and he called out to him, it was really interesting because Saul's response was, who are you? When Jesus does this with Ananias, he says, here I am. There's a distinction between the two. It reveals something regarding the anatomy of a disciple of Jesus. For a disciple of Jesus, when the Lord speaks, there's a response of willingness and readiness. He recognizes his voice and he says, I'm here. Like a soldier, he says, here I am. I'm willing to listen. He's leaning in to hear. What do you have for me? He recognizes the voice and he reports for duty. In fact, one day this week, I was sitting, I was spending some time, I was journaling, and I, I was just thinking about this passage. I was thinking about all the implications of it, but I found myself, as I was looking at this, I just wrote those four words across the top of my journal. Here I am. And I just began to examine my own heart, my own life. And I asked the Lord, I said, am I the kind of person that when I approach you or when you approach me, I stand with a willingness simply saying, here I am. Do whatever you would want with me. The more I thought about that, I began to make some realizations about Ananias. I began to ask some other questions. And I thought, is the reason that Jesus came to Ananias in this vision, is the reason that he was knowing that he would respond this way because there were moments that preceded this when Ananias had done it before? Was he the kind of man who had a pattern of saying, here I am, Lord, tell me where to go, tell me what to do. I happen to believe that that's the kind of man or woman that God is looking for. People who will stand and say at the voice of Jesus, what do you have for me? 
So I love this part of the story. I love his willingness just to simply say, I'm in, whatever it is, I'll do this. But I also love what happens next because it also connects with our reality. Verse 11, it says this, Then the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So Ananias says, here I am. And Jesus says, well, then here you go. Here's your instructions. I've even paved the way for you. This guy's expecting you. I've given him a vision and he knows you're coming. Except there's a problem. Ananias knows who Saul is, right? And in this moment, there is something that takes place that happens over and over in the lives of so many people who desire the promises of Jesus, but struggle with the causes of Jesus. Ananias knows who Saul is. So he says, I hear you, Lord. I'm here for you, Lord. And then you hear the record screech as everything comes to a stop. In verse 13, he responds, he says, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he's authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. By the way, I always love it when people choose to inform Jesus about details that he seemed to have forgotten, right? I mean, like Jesus somehow missed this little detail, and now he's going to let him know, you know, Jesus, I don't know if you realize this, there's information about this guy, right? He's questioning him, right? He's questioning him. This isn't just, just, hey, I'm a little uncomfortable. He's actually saying, are you sure? And in actuality, you and I do the same thing. When we inform Jesus about the details, when we explain the complexity to Jesus about whatever it is that he's asking us to do, we aren't simply informing him. We're actually questioning him. Are you sure, Jesus? Is this really what you want from me? That's what's happening here, and that's what happens every year. It happens every month. It happens sometimes every week. For people who call themselves Christians, we get the instructions. The instructions are clear, but the instructions are complicated. The implications are incongruent with the way that you and I think life should work. And so we begin to question. And my guess is that a bunch of us that are watching this right now, we've been prompted by Jesus at some point or another. We've been prompted to, to move in a direction, to move towards a person, to engage in some kind of mission, to give sacrificially. There's something he's prompted us towards, but somewhere between the prompting of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the execution of those instructions, we start talking sense into Jesus. Like, do you really know how much that's going to cost me? So, so just like Ananias, you and I, we've done this. We've said, Jesus, there are implications. And I don't know that you understand what they mean. Maybe you even go to the wisdom literature. You go to Proverbs and you talk about being wise or you talk about being moderate in certain things, hoping that you can somehow escape what he's calling you to do. And, and here's what I've discovered. The reason we do that is that something in the instructions violates our sensibilities about how life is supposed to be. So let's take Ananias as an example, because I think he's a great example of this. He's a part of a minority population. I want you to understand this. They are under specific persecution. And that persecution is being spearheaded by one person. And logic would tell you, if you are leading the faith equivalent of some sort of bootstrapped entrepreneurial startup, and there's one individual who's out to end what you're doing, that you would avoid this individual. You would stay as far away from him as possible. Because survival of the Jesus movement is at stake, right? 
right? This is the guy who is our enemy. So why in the world would I go near this person? So when Jesus tells him, you're going to go to Saul, the only conclusion that he can draw, if he thinks this is true, is that Saul being reconciled to God is more important than his safety. Jesus, do you really feel like his reconciliation is more important than you keeping me alive? Is that what you're communicating to me? How can this be? He represents everything that we're not, everything that we're avoiding. He's a threat to our existence. It's hard enough for me to love my neighbor as myself, and now you want me to actually move towards this guy? Is that what you're asking? Oh, wait. That's exactly what Jesus is asking, right? And it's not just here. See, there's a word that we have for people who we consider a threat, for people who are against us, for people who have different values than us, for people who are against our people. And that word is enemy. We call them enemies. And one of the best ways for you and I to identify our enemies is to look at our emotions. Who is it that makes you angry? Who is it that makes you get defensive? Is there a person? Is there a group of people that just make you uncomfortable? Are there conversations that just sort of spin you out of control and suddenly you can't control your emotions? So you start asking those kinds of questions, and somewhere in there, you will find your enemies. And I want you to really see clearly what Jesus says, not just to Ananias, but to all of us about our enemies. Luke chapter 6, verse 27. Luke also wrote the book of Acts. This is his letter that precedes this, or his biography that precedes this, and this is what he says there. He says, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, I say to you, who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. And then a few verses later, he continues in verse 32, and he says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you, if you lend to those to whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And then I love verse 36. He says, be merciful, even as your father is merciful. Jesus says the contrast between you, my followers, and everybody else in the world is that you love like nobody else loves. That's what makes you different. If your love, if your goodness, if your generosity is only extended to those who reciprocate, if it's only extended to those that you're comfortable with, that's how everyone operates in the natural. That's how everyone is. And Jesus is saying, I am calling you to be supernatural, beyond the natural. And I truly believe that one of the most supernatural things that you will ever do in your life is choosing to love somebody who hates you or is opposed to you. It may be embracing somebody that's different from you. It might be embracing somebody, accepting somebody who's so different from you. By the way, as I, as I say this, I recognize this is the part of this where many of you are tempted to inform Jesus or at least start to ask some questions, right? Questions like, well, what about this group? What about that group? What about this person? What about that person, right? You start to do this. And this is where I truly believe all of us, what we need is like a Jesus bobblehead when we ask these questions and he just nods and he says, yes, yes. Yes, yes. Every time you ask the question, do I have to love? He just says, yes, you have to love. Supernatural, beyond the natural. 
I love something that my friend Albert Tate said this past week. He's the pastor of Fellowship Monrovia, and he said this. He said, anything that makes you feel better about loving your neighbor less is probably God-less. I think that calls into question a lot of things that we see, a lot of things we read, a lot of things we hear. By the way, I also don't know anyone who would ever define love, true love, as simply putting up with people. When we talk about love, love is always moving towards the other. It's going to them. It's, it's taking the first step. It's making the first move. That is what it looks like to love. And I just want to recognize and acknowledge this, that some of us, we've participated in church cultures that told us to avoid certain others because of the potential of corruption. Some of us have participated in church cultures that, that, that permitted this sort of polite hatred of groups that are different. Some of us have confused the winds of politics in our nation with the wind and the breath of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is looking for people who are of a different culture. This passage in Luke 6, it, it gives us a clue as to how we enter into this. You say, well, how do I experience this? How do I move to this? He actually leads us back to Acts 9 and shows us something. When Jesus ends this whole thing about how we're generous and how we're loving and how we're kind to those that are our enemies, he closes with this. He says, I want, I want you to be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Even as your Father. You know, when he does this, he's pointing to a very basic human principle, and it's this idea that you and I learn by example, we learn by looking at somebody. Ask anybody who's a, a wannabe do-it-yourself or what their favorite website is. They'll tell you it's YouTube, right? I don't know how many times I've read the instruction manual. I've tried to do something. I can't figure it out. And I open up YouTube and I watch somebody do it. And after I watch them, I go and do it. And everything's just easier. That's how we learn as human beings. What Jesus is saying at the end of this passage in Luke is this. Do you see your father? Do you see the way that he loves? That's what I want you to do. Do you see the way he's merciful? That's the way I want you to be merciful. And that leads us to this principle. Seeing as God sees will result in you loving as God loves. You, seeing as God sees, will result in you loving the way that God loves. And let me just say this. If you are not loving people in the world the way that God loves people in the world, then you are not seeing people in the world the way that God sees people in the world. You have cloudy vision. So let's get back to Acts. Ananias, he balks at this. You know who this is, right? This guy's our enemy. And then we read this in verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, I just want to show you what Jesus did here, because I think this is beautiful and it's so good for us to learn from. What is Jesus doing when he says this to Ananias? Ananias sees a murderous, threat-breathing enemy of Christianity. But Jesus sees a chosen instrument. Jesus sees somebody who's going to carry his name to the Gentiles. Jesus sees somebody who's going to sit before kings and proclaim him. Jesus sees somebody who's going to suffer for his name. And I just want you to understand how inconceivable these things are for Ananias to even hear. Gentiles, no self-respecting Jew would ever go to the Gentiles. Kings, no one like Saul would ever be able to be in the presence of kings and to suffer when he's caused so much suffering for your name. How could this even be possible? Ananias would have been dumbfounded, and yet every one of these things becomes a reality in Saul's life. And, and then here, here's the cool thing. 
when Ananias sees as God sees, he loves as God loves. Look at verse 17. It says, so Ananias, he departed and he entered the house. Why did he do that? Because he saw how God saw Saul, not how he saw Saul. He departed, he went to the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Here's the question that I have to ask. Can we see as God sees? Can we see those who are rumored to be dangerous or are actually dangerous as God sees them? Can we see them in a future that is drenched in God's desire for their life? Can we see them? Ananias goes to Saul and the only thing he is armed with is God's vision for his life. It's all I've got. He has no idea what's going to happen next. He just knows, I got to go do this, and I got to tell this guy this thing. I think, sadly, uh, we live in a Christian reality today. For those of you that are Christians, you're a part of the church, and you're watching this. We live in a Christian reality today that has been perverted by our cultural obsession with safety and the avoidance of pain. And as a result of that, most Christians in the West, we have no theology for suffering, nor do we have the capacity to risk anything of our own for the cause of Christ. So a scene like this, it's nearly impossible for us because we wouldn't have control of this. There's so much uncertainty in this. There's so much danger. There's potential suffering. So let me be clear about something. When you begin to press forward and you become obedient to what Jesus is calling you to do, there is never a balance in understanding in this. When Jesus says go, there is almost always a better of sense for what is going to take place in the lives of those you're going to than there is for what God's going to do in your life. You always have a clear vision for what he's going to do there. You always have a better idea for them, but there will be questions of, but what about me in this? There will always be a lack of balance in this. And yet somehow in the middle of the going, in the middle of the pressing, in the middle of the uncertainty, that is where some of the deepest discipleship to Jesus takes place, is in this moment, true discipleship that changes the way we think and the way that we see and the way that we feel towards others happens when we step out in that imbalance. I love what Dr. Willie Jennings says about this. He says this, he says, the truth we know of a person or people must move to the background. Get, get that. The truth we know of a person or people must move to the background and what we know of God's desire for them must move to the foreground. The danger we imagine inscribed on their bodies must be read against the delight we know that God takes in their life. That same delight covers us. I love that last part. That same delight covers us. See, let me just tell you this, that the enemy of love isn't just, about, or the, the, isn't just about us not seeing as God sees. It is just as much about me not seeing me as God sees me, which is the beauty of the gospel. See, see the gospel tells a story that I need to be con consistently, constantly reminded of. The gospel says I'm estranged from God. The gospel says you're estranged from God. The gospel even says that I'm an, I'm an enemy of God. But the gospel also says, according to Romans 5, that while I was still an enemy, he loved me and he reconciled me back to himself. 
So the relationship between loving your enemy and your understanding of how you were loved as an enemy is crucial. It's critical. You, you can never love another person who's an enemy until you understand how you've been loved as an enemy. You can't do that unless you've experienced it. If you haven't experienced it, by the way, you probably haven't experienced the gospel. Because when you say yes to the gospel, you accept the reality that you have been extended radical, undeserved mercy and grace. You are an enemy who is loved. You can't experience the gospel until you admit that. So, so if you ever think that you earned the grace, if you ever think that you earned the mercy, that you earned the favor, then you have not only not experienced the gospel, but you've most likely become the kind of person who expects other people to earn it from you. I mean, let me say it this way. If you think you deserve what you have in Christ, you're actually not a Christian. You're just religious. And if you're just religious, well, then it's easy to walk in self-righteousness and judgment towards others. That's what makes the gospel so beautiful. There is nothing like it. There's nothing that says, I was an enemy and I was loved, which means that now I can love my enemies. When you see as God sees, you will love as God loves. I'm going to invite the worship team to get ready to close us. And as they come and prepare, I'm just going to ask you this question. Who is your enemy? Who makes your blood boil? Who stirs your emotions? What conversations, what groups of people make you defensive? Who have you determined in your own mind to be dangerous? I want you to answer that. I want you to think about that. And then I want to challenge you with this. Jesus is calling you to love them. That's what it looks like to be the kind of people who flip this world upside down. And every time you struggle to love them, every time you think, no, there's this tension, every time you feel awkward, every time you feel the emotions stir up, every time you want to protect what's yours, just remind yourself of the love that was extended to you when you were still an enemy of God. I want this to sink in a bit. I want this to marinate and we're going to take this moment to, to just worship and I want these things to, to, to roll around in your thinking. I want you to wrestle with this and in a few minutes, I'm going to be back and offer the benediction but in this time, I think it's important that we wrestle with this. Are we the kind of person when it comes to loving our enemy that looks Jesus in the eyes and says, here I am. I want to see as you see. Let's worship together.
As I said at the very beginning, there are some things that Jesus said that are so incredibly clear. The difficulty is not understanding their meaning. The difficulty is living it out. I know that for some of you, as I've spoken today, there might be a, a part of who Jesus is that you've never seen before. There might be some challenges for you as you live your life. Some of you, maybe you're realizing the gospel is far more beautiful than you ever imagined. And some of you, maybe for the first time, you feel like God is telling you to say yes to following Jesus. And I want to encourage you to do that. Uh, maybe it's something as simple as right now in this moment, just saying yes to God. Maybe it's writing something in a journal, calling a friend, sending me an email. I don't care what it is, but just say, I, I want to say yes to this way of Jesus. And I want to say yes to the gospel. It's a beautiful thing to know that Jesus can use you and I to turn this world upside down. So now, to all of us, I want to offer the benediction. If you'll hold your hands out to receive this wherever you are, I want to offer this to you. May you be men and women who see others the way that God sees others. May you have his eyes and his vision, and may you love unconditionally, sacrificially, the way that he loves and may you, wherever you are in your neighborhood, at your job, wherever you find yourself, may you turn that corner of the world upside down because you love in such a backwards, supernatural way. In Jesus' name, amen. I love you guys so much. Thank you for hanging with us during this season. I just can't wait to see you again soon. Have an amazing week this week, and we'll be checking in with you very soon. See you guys later.